This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about identity and bias and how we can learn to really talk about these complicated issues with one another. Across the country, we're seeing growing and conflicting waves of inclusion and intolerance. On the deeply frightening side, we see the increasing volume of hate speech and violence by white supremacists. Well, at the same time, we see the promise of an unprecedented slate of diverse candidates that were just elected to the House of Representatives and the growing visibility of our LGBTQ plus community in schools across the country. We also see businesses working really hard to attract and retain a more diverse workforce albeit often stymied by complex social factors that are made more complex by our inability to really grasp the experiences of people who are different than we are and talk with each other in ways that could actually generate real respect and compassion, which is why I've invited two experts to join us today to help us maybe even build new toolkits for connecting with one another through the way that we talk about these things. In our first half hour, we'll be talking with Dr. Aaron Cross, who is the director of Penn's Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Center. And in the second half hour, we'll be talking with Emory Professor George Yancey, author of the powerful New York Times opinion pieces, hashtag I am sexist and Dear White America. If you have questions or comments about anything on today's show, please email us. We really would love to hear from you, and we'll address them on our next show. You can reach us at business radio at SiriusXM.com. But meanwhile, I want to tell you a little bit about our first guest. So Aaron is the director of Penn's LGBTQ plus center. And we'll talk about those letters and what that all means in a little bit. And where she actually began as its first full-time program coordinator almost 20 years ago. And she doesn't look it. Um, Building on her background in history and political science, Aaron earned her PhD at Penn's Graduate School of Education. And in addition to the amazing work she does at the center, Aaron's a faculty fellow in Stouffer College House, affiliated faculty with Penn's Gen Sexuality and Women's Studies program, and she has been honored as a model of excellent Penn's top staff honor, not once, not twice, not three times, folks, but four times. And she, as you can imagine, regularly consults with Penn faculty as well as outside K-12 through schools, universities, and both non- and for-profits about gender and transgender issues. So Erin, I can't tell you how grateful I am to have you join us on Women at Work. Thank you so much, Laura. So you and I were looking at... Um, a project that a team had done uh, that was intended to help um, improve and kind of an intervention for bias in the workplace. And when we were looking at it together, one of the things that you said to me is it's so binary. Yes. And I got kind of caught dead in my track because I thought this was a really cool thing. It was looking at kind of breaking down some barriers and getting people to see their own unconscious biases. And when you presented that word to me, I was both intrigued and embarrassed, but I wasn't sure what I was embarrassed of. And you very graciously let me ask, huh, what, why, what did I do? So I was wondering if we could start there. Talk to me about that concept of being binary and why words like this matter. Absolutely. So binary is the concept that here in the United States, especially, and we'll keep it grounded in the United States since that's where we're recording this conversation, is that 
everybody falls into categories of male and female, so two ends of a binary. And that's just not the case. Um, there's scientific evidence and proof walking around on a day-to-day -day basis that folks identify very differently just from male or female. And that's really important as we look toward the workplace and the campuses to make sure we're serving folks the best we can. So by thinking on this idea of binary, it not only creates only two options, so anybody that doesn't neatly fall within them is left out, not seen, not heard, not understood, not recognized. But I also feel like it contributes to an us versus them approach. They're either like me or they're not like me. Absolutely. I think you hit it on the head. Um, there's not inclusion and therefore, hey, people aren't like me. I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure how to handle this on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh my gosh, where do they go to the bathroom? That's always the question that immediately <laughs> comes up first. Um, I don't know why bathrooms are such a contentious issue because we all need to use them. But um, it definitely sets up an us versus them. Folks who were taught to be quote unquote normal versus folks who don't quite fit into that binary language. So one of, I don't know if you're familiar with Laura Liswood's work, mm -hmm. um, and the loudest duck happens to be, she makes it amazingly accessible, but she's talking about some important things, like when we have a dominant group, mm -hmm. that if you're not part of that dominant group, you're on the defensive. Absolutely. And so in our workplaces, in our schools, um, and what's the term for people who are not LGBTQ plus? It's a great question. So there's two different terms. Okay. Because LGB. Lesbian, gay, bisexual. Yes. And Q, queer, and some of our plus are sexual orientations. So folks who don't identify as LGBQ or plus usually identify as heterosexual. And I think we all know what that means. Right. So, but as far as gender identity, we have transgender folks. And under that, there's tons of different um, umbrella identities um, under that umbrella. So folks like me who identify with the sex I was assigned at birth, we use the term cisgender. And that's C-I-S, cisgender. It is, absolutely. And we use that term so we don't use normal. <laughs> right. So that it kind of changes that idea that me, I'm the center of the universe. And if you're different than me, you're wrong. Absolutely. Okay. And so when did these terms come into our vocabulary? I know that as much as I try and be a conscious present member of our society, it's my 16-year-old daughter who's constantly teaching me what I don't know. Is it that I've been asleep for low these many years, or is there a growing vocabulary that's being developed? I think there's a growing vocabulary. I mean, every day we learn a new term at the LGBT Center. Really? So <laughs> it's funny that you're talking about your daughter because we learn from our students as well. We're like, oh, we didn't hear that word. Please help us as far as that's concerned. I mean, some terms have been around for a long time, like gay and lesbian and even bisexual at mm -hmm. this point has been around for a really long time. Queer wasn't reclaimed. Um, as a term of empowerment until the late 80s, early 90s. When I was growing up in the 70s, it was the worst thing you could possibly right. call anybody. And now it's in daily parlance. It's on television. You see it everywhere. My 70-something-year-old mother uses it on a regular basis. So we know it's we have pretty TV mainstream. shows, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. That's right. Absolutely. So And Queer as Folk at that point, <laughs> That's too. Right. So queer has been out there for a while. That said, it's kind of an in-group term on some levels. So be careful using it because there's still folks even within the community who don't like using it. But if you hear other folks use it, feel free. Or if you feel more comfortable using it, feel free and then explain. If somebody says, ooh, I'm not quite sure about that word. And then we have transgender, which kind of has evolved over the years by far. 
um, that started first as transsexual, which really meant somebody who wanted to modify their body to have it uh, be the same as their gender identity, so how they felt inside. So that's where it all started. But transgender really is this term that means anything that isn't cisgender. Okay. So there are tons of identities under there. The ones we hear most often are transgender, gender nonconforming, or non-binary. In fact, the largest percent of students on our campus, and we have a large trans community, 3%, identify as non-binary, which means that binary I was talking about earlier, that male-female, they're not even on it. They don't even necessarily feel male or female. And so by moving away from these terms that are overly simplistic, while it may be confusing a lot of people that are not familiar with them, it may actually be helping the people who were not identifying with those terms feel seen and heard and like there's a place for them. Absolutely. And that's key. It's There's power in being able to claim an identity and be able to say, I am here. I am contributing. You need to see me so that I can do the best I can, whether it's being a student or a worker in a workplace. So having these terms is really important. And it's also really important to know that one person's definition of some of these terms might be really different from the next person. And that can change based on many different factors. It could be faith, community, region, part of the world, you name it. So a lot of this is individual, but as long as we have these categories where we can think things through, if we don't identify as them, it's very helpful. So you mentioned 3% of the Penn community yes. identifies as non-binary. Identifies as transgender, and a large por portion of that identifies as non-binary. Okay, so 3% identifies as transgender. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to try and channel... Um, the generation that came before me who will be around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Okay. And, um, you know, and I heard this at past holidays. It seems like, is this the new fashion? Is everybody just adopting this because it seems like it's what all the kids are doing now? Or is this a reflection of something that's been suppressed for millennia? I think this, you hit it on the head with the last statement you made, that this has been suppressed for millennia. And the national average in the United States is 0.5% of the population identifies as transgender. And even in data collection, it's hard to get really good numbers. So we do think there are more people than 0.5%. But it's totally something that has been suppressed. And now that there is a word to claim or an identity to claim and the internet, where you can really Google away and you're not alone and you can find these folks and there's even RuPaul's Drag Race and all these other things out there. People are willing to be themselves. And then when people get to be themselves, they can be the best folks they can be, whether that's the best student, the best employee, the best spouse, whatever it is, as long as people can be their true selves. They can be the best they can be. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest in this half of the show is Dr. Erin Cross, director of Penn's Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Center. So, Erin, I want to talk about how we talk about these things, because mm -hmm. it seems like that's part of helping people feel seen and be their best selves. Mm -hmm. But I want to start with the name of the center. Yes. Um, is there a plus? Why is there a plus? 
there is no plus, there's not even a queue. Okay. I know. A lot of people just assume we have a queue. Right now at our center, which is the second oldest in the country. And, and the largest, real, and right? The, and the largest, square footage-wise. Anybody in Philly, please come visit us. You're always welcome. Um, we're the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Center. And at first, we were the program for lesbian and gays. Then bisexual was added. And then in spring 1999, after a lot of self-work, we added transgender to our name. There's been a lot of discussion since then about adding the Q. In fact, it's come up again this year. <laughs> um, I've been in my current role for a little over a year, and it's a serious discussion because queer really is a term that a lot of folks use to identify themselves because it's not as pigeonholing. Say, mm -hmm. if I said I was lesbian, you're like, oh, a woman who's attracted to other women. But if I say queer, it just means not heterosexual. So there's a little more flow in there. And it's used a lot more in academic circles as well. So we are contemplating adding the Q. And my gut is if we're adding the Q, we might as well add the plus because we do have so many more identities that fall under the purview of the LGBT center, whether that's asexuals, agender people, you name it. And if we keep adding letters, we're going to have the longest name on campus. <laughs> but it does mean that you're making a place for a lot of people who aren't finding places elsewhere and a place where they can feel safe and supported and be themselves. Absolutely. And our center is that. And our wider goal is to make sure the campus feels like a safe place for folks. We can't guarantee every corner of it. But we want folks to feel comfortable in their classrooms, see themselves in their professors, in their syllabi, so on and so forth, not just hey, I have to go to this one little center to be who I can truly be. So when I talk to you about these things, mm -hmm. you always make this wonderfully safe place where I feel like I'm going to ask my stupid questions. I'm going to trip over language. Um, I appreciated one day when I, I needed to go to the bathroom and my impulse was I'm going to go to the ladies room. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. Mm -hmm. And I, I but I had to be very conscious to realize that that was a baked in assumption mm -hmm. on my own binary experience but that instead it was a restroom. Right. How do we, when we're not talking to you, Erin, when we're <laughs> out there at work, when we're in the classroom with people who are not professionals in, in, in helping us talk to each other, mm -hmm. how can we open the lines of communication so that we can get it right? And when somebody's not getting it right in our presence, we can help to correct the dialogue without it being inflammatory. Absolutely. And I could talk about that for hours upon hours, so I'm going to keep it short and sweet um, as far as that's concerned. So if you hear somebody say something, um, for instance, use the bathroom example, where's the ladies' room? Just say, oh, there's one down the hall. The men's room is right next to it. And the single-use or the gender-inclusive restroom is right next to that. So always making sure that people realize that you're in the know, that somebody might not identify the way they perhaps are presenting to the world. You want to give people all those options. So that's an easy way to just step in and not be like, don't say ladies room. Um, <laughs> because I was raised saying that as well. A lot of us were and so much has changed so quickly that it's just easy to be like, oh, here are the other options. I just want to make sure you go where it's safe for you. As far as hearing derogatory language or microaggressions, Making sure you say something, because if you don't say something, who is going to say something? Even if it's like, I wouldn't say that. And then pull the person aside afterward and talk to them about why that's hurtful to you, why that's hurtful to other people, and how we really can reframe that to make sure everybody feels open and welcome in the workplace. But I think a good place to start, not just in the classroom, 
but in the workspace is when we have new employee orientation talking right from the beginning about how your workplace really respects folks of all identities. And this is how it plays out. It plays out by having pronouns in your email signature. It plays out by making sure you know where the restrooms are. It plays out by making sure your health coverage really covers transgender individuals. So really starting from the beginning and having that as a ground point so everybody feels comfortable bringing up these issues, whether they're about sexual orientation, gender identity, or other areas of difference. So you just clarified something for me that once again makes me feel like, oh my God, I, what a dunce I am. <laughs> um, the issue of pronouns mm -hmm. and why it's not just for people who want their pronouns confirmed, but that if we all embrace the use of pronouns, we're making a safe place for other people to use pronouns that we might not assume right. are the ones that they prefer. Absolutely. And that's incredibly important that if we just start putting it all out there, I know when I introduce myself most of the time, I say, hey, I'm Erin. I use she, her, hers. And it just puts out there that, oh, this person's okay with pronouns. Even if the other person doesn't share immediately, they know it. And then for most people, they're like, oh, yeah. I use he, him, his, or they, them, theirs. Okay. And it's just I, I, wonderful. Okay. Now I have to pause on this for okay. a moment because it, it A, it, it, there's there can be a little humor to it, but the humor actually can belie the real issue behind the use of they. Yes. So, um, and I've shared this with you before, that my daughter was talking about they were coming over, mm -hmm. and I set two places for dinner, and it was one person. Mm -hmm. And we, I felt like this old funny-duddy where I'm like, it's a grammar thing. Can't we come <laughs> up with another term? Um, a, why is they the chosen pronoun, mm -hmm. and how can we find ways in language to address those moments of confusion mm -hmm. while focusing on the thing that matters, which is honoring the person we're talking to? It's a, it's a tricky dance that we usually have to do. Um, they, them has been used throughout history, even during Shakespeare's time. Okay. And it's a word we're all comfortable with even though we're comfortable with it as a plural. Thank you, Ms. Kokai, my <laughs> high school English teacher. Um, but using it singularly has been able to transport it into American vernacular much easier because even when we're talking with each other, kind of having fun or just a light conversation, a lot of times we use they, them and don't realize it's we're It's funny. Yes, it was Mrs. Torchinsky it. who got all over my case in fifth grade about using it inappropriately. Right. And we just do it. It happens everywhere around the United States. So reclaiming that has been much easier than using some other alternate pronouns like Z, Zim, Zers. Which um, are not natural to us as English speakers. Right. But okay. they, them are. And they, them are now approved by Oxford English Dictionary, so on and so forth, as singular. So folks out there listening, it's all right to use them in your written language. That's really, really important. Also, oh, that actually by moving past those grammar rules that we were taught and getting a little flexible about the use of those pronouns in mm -hmm. regular speech, it actually makes them more comfortable and natural when they are an identifier for somebody. Absolutely. And I'm okay to do this without getting the red editor's pen now. Mm -hmm. So it's both a political act and grammatically okay? It is. And an act of love in some ways. It, I think it's a huge act of love. And another thing folks can do around they, them is use that as your default pronoun. If you see somebody and you're trying to explain, you can use they, them instead of he. Like Aaron was she. in the studio and they said. Right. Even though you're a she. Right. But we can use it. We can use it. 
and just default to that until and people it starts to normalize us. some of it. It absolutely norms it really quickly. So, as the director of the center, mm-hmm. um, you, I, I almost look at the center like it's a model for us to learn about in workplaces. Mm-hmm. That you're a resource for the community here on campus. Your doors are not closed to people who are not part of the lesbian, bisexual, gay. What's the whole list? Yes, our whole list of letters. We're open to anybody, anybody who has a everybody. sexual orientation or gender identity. So literally every human every being. Every human being. Yes. And um, in creating the work of the center, in managing it and guiding it, what do you think the rest of the school needs to learn from you? What does the bigger organization need to learn from the safe space in order to protect the safe space and mm-hmm. help those people interact with the rest of the community? Right. I think interaction is the key. I think most folks protect the safe space. And a lot of times people are like, oh, we have a center. We're good. You know, here's the touchstone. Go there. But then Um, that's your hideaway. Correct. And that's what we're trying to. Our tagline is you belong. But we want to make sure folks belong on the whole campus as well. So things people can learn from us here on the campus is, hey, faculty, on your syllabi, put your pronouns after your name. That is really simple, but is a great signal to folks. You can also, at the beginning of class, have an information form where people put their pronouns if you don't want to ask them in class, because some folks don't feel comfortable with that and might feel forced to pick a binary pronoun. They can list them there or whatever name they want to be called. And so that could be great for transgender individuals or people using their Hebrew name or a nickname. So you can just put that out at the front that you want people to come as they are. And I think that really translates well into the workplace, too. We all have to have our legal names for for our payroll and other things, but that doesn't mean in the system that I can't have a nickname and that people would know me as something different than my legal and name. And so when we have our email signatures at work, we can put our pronouns in? You can put your pronouns and in. And also we could find graceful ways if... Um, you know, personally, I want to be Ms. Mm-hmm. I, there are all these kids at my daughter's school who call me Mrs. Zarrow. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I never changed my main name and I'm not married. So neither of those, that was my right. grandmother. They're trying to be respectful. So you could guide people to the pronouns and the ways of referring to you that A, you're more comfortable with, but it'll ease the tension of the social interactions Absolutely. because you're sending cues to them mm-hmm. about who you are and how you prefer to be addressed. And you can even in starting in the hiring process when we're writing letters, you don't have to use honorifics. You don't have to have Mr., Mrs. Zero, or anything like that. I can can just just say, say, Dear Aaron. Dear Aaron, or Dear Laura Zaro. And that's the Quaker way, and we're at a Quaker school. (laughs) So it works out really well, because when folks get misgendered, it starts chipping away at who they are, and nobody's going to be their best selves, and nobody's going to be the best student or the best employee if they're being chipped at every day a little bit at a time so that's bringing up a good point and with a little bit of time that we have left what one of the things that hit me in my heart was when i realized that all of these people that are emerging now Mm -hmm. um, have been hiding their true selves and that that has got to take an emotional toll on them what do you see as the byproduct the benefits aside from um their ability to succeed in school. Are you Mm -hmm. seeing that there's a corresponding kind of well-being and happiness that grows, a a psychological health that grows as people start to identify as who they really are? Yes, definitely. Um, I've seen many people over my 20 years who have come out as trans and just 
the joy of it and not having to live two different lives and have that emotional energy be expent is just crazy once they can have all their energy toward whatever they want to do. Like, for instance, we have an amazing trans alum who is a honored children's book author now who, if they never came out, I don't think that would have ever happened because they wouldn't have the energy to focus on that and just to see people being who they can be and being emotionally better off and emotional well-being leads to well-being in other parts of lives and it is just an amazing process to see. Okay, so for students who are looking to find a community on their campus, especially if their campus doesn't have one, mm -hmm. where can they look for support and community? Well, for students, there is a national website of what we call the consortium. It has a longer name, which I never remember the name of, um, which is all the LGBT centers in the country. And their website is lgbtcampus.org. And that's the best place to find support. And if you can't find yourself on there, feel free to reach out to us at Penn's LGBT Center because we want to serve everybody and make sure you're safe and comfortable at your school as well. And to find us, we're at www dot v-p-u-l dot u-p-e-n-n dot e-d-u backslash l-g-b-t-c long one or just go to our website Penn's website and search l-g-b-t and we'll pop right up yeah it's how i find you and i need to find the there you go out. it's there and um one of the things that i love about the way that you run the center is that you can you your doors are wide open to Absolutely. the community even the cisgendered straight community we like those kind of folks too. Yeah, everyone's welcome. But talk about ways, just briefly, for staff, faculty, um, whether they're employees at a university or elsewhere, where mm -hmm. are resources that adults can turn to to find a community when they don't have the benefit of student support? Absolutely. It depends on what type of company you work for or entity you work for. So a lot of entities have employee resource groups, and many of them, especially the larger ones, have very large LGBTQ plus groups. In fact, many of those groups are the ones who've kind of pushed ahead better healthcare for trans and LGBT folks writ large. So look for an employee resource group. That's really important. Also, you can look in the city where you're at or the location where you're at. More and more cities, and I'm not just talking big ones, smaller cities now have LGBTQ centers in the community or at least have a group that meets fairly regularly. PFLAG, Parents, Friends, Families of Lesbians and Gays, is in many communities. So you can just look them up. There's lots of things you can find. Erin, this is so helpful. So as a short takeaway, one is let's signal to the other people in our communities that we welcome them exactly as they define themselves. We yes. can do that with our pronouns, how we address letters. Uh, we can do that by how we acknowledge the small things, the bathrooms. But it's sending a bigger message that I see you, I accept you for how you arrive, and that we want you here. Absolutely. And there's a whole host of resources, whether you're on a college campus or in the working world, if you need to find community and support. Yes. And we're here for you. Absolutely. We're here for you. Erin, I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Laura. And for making a safe place for me to ask all the hard questions. My pleasure. Um, we're going to take a break now, but we'll be back shortly. We're going to be talking about hashtag I am sexist, profound opinion piece in the New York Times, and its incredible author, George Yancey, in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and make a more diversive and inclusive community while we're at it. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and in this half hour, we're going to discuss what may be one of the most powerful antidotes to bias and bigotry, which is actually when we focus on its presence within ourselves. We're going to be doing this with a man who has done just that in his powerful and provocative work. I became aware of Professor George Yancey through his recent opinion piece in the New York Times titled Hashtag I Am Sexist, um, which then led me to his enormously potent Dear White America that had been published on Christmas Eve just a few years ago. Um, that also has served as the prompt or the catalyst for his recent book, Backlash. George's impressive work includes a whole body of scholarly work in his life as a philosophy professor. Um, he's really interested in ways to engage philosophy dynamically to practice frank speech or what we're going to discuss as courageous speech within and outside of the classroom. He has authored, edited, and co-edited numerous books, articles, and chapters. He's been quoted worldwide, including places as far away as Turkey, Australia, South Africa, and Sweden. He's the Philosophy of Race book series editor at Lexington Books. And fortunately for us, our guest today on Women at Work. George, welcome to the show. We are really honored to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for that wonderful introduction as well. <laughs> um, so, George, talk to me about why you wrote hashtag I am sexist in the New York Times and why you wrote it now. Yeah, I, I felt that uh, there was a need for um, males in our society, you know, those who identify as males, cisgendered, heterosexual males, uh, to begin to think about ways in which they perpetuate forms of misogyny patriarchy and sexism in ways that they may not understand that they do. Uh, and that idea is consistent with the way in which I think about uh, whiteness. It's the way in which I, it's consistent with the way in which I think about white supremacy. Uh, so to give you an example, in my, in my article, Dear White America, which I wrote in 2015 for the New York Times, and that piece actually came out on uh, Christmas Eve, which was kind of interesting because I referred to the letter as a gift. In fact, I refer to it as a, a letter of love. And in that, in that particular article, I decided to, as it were, come out as a sexist uh, in order to build a bridge, as it were, between myself and those white individuals um, with whom I was speaking and trying to get them to identify ways in which their racism operates both blatantly and subtly. And so the idea was that if I were to talk about my own sexism and to come out as a sexist, uh, that would hold up a kind of uh, a way in which they could model what uh, they were seeing in me as a level of honesty and courageous speech, and that they would model that and hence also begin to talk courageously about their, uh, about their whiteness and white privilege. But of course, in that case, there was a great deal of backlash. Um, and uh, in terms of what actually happened is I was called all kinds of names, uh, and I needed police presence during my, my lectures um, at various universities and even uh, during my uh, even during cases where I, where I teach at the university. I had to have police presence. So, so I thought to myself, well, I think I need another piece, right? And, and why did I need this piece? I needed it in the light of the, the Kavanaugh situation. I needed it uh, in the light of, you know, Bill Cosby uh, having been arrested and, of course, now having been charged and now doing prison time. 
Weinstein, uh, the entire um, hashtag Me Too movement, I thought it's necessary for me as a male uh, to, to speak clearly and unambiguously about his sexism and the ways in which he perpetuates sexism, either through certain kinds of um, pornographic, uh, my pornographic imaginary, or in terms of the way in which I engage in, which is an extension of that, fragmenting women's bodies on a, on a daily basis and what that means, or the way in which I'm just sort of part of this structure, call it patriarchy, and the ways in which I may not even realize or have thought about, because they're so commonsensical, uh, the ways in which I have come to perpetuate violence against women. So, George, I want to to break this down because there's so much in what you did and in what you just said. Um, And I'm going to translate it. I'm going to try and translate it for our listeners through my own experience with it Um, Mm -hmm. and help me see if I'm understanding it and where the power in it comes from. So when I read hashtag I am sexist, I even wrote you a note on Twitter because I was so grateful and blown away that the in it, you make very clear that you love and respect women. You even talk about how your relationship with your own wife has led you to learn about these aspects of yourself. And that it showed me a man who was saying, I actually respect women enough that I'm going to stand up and own this part of me so that I can do a better job of treating women as equals. Am I understanding it correctly? Oh, absolutely. In, in, in fact, well stated. Um, I, I think, you know, look, it's not just, you know, that I was invested in sort of, um, you know, m- making it clear that, uh, well, maybe I should say this, I was very much invested in making it clear that I am an individual who, if you look at the word misogynist, it actually means to hate women. Now, I'm not a hater of women, but yet I am this male who has, from a very young age, been inculcated by cultural assumptions uh, certain notions about gender divisions, and I give this uh, wonderful example of my wife. Well, before before we got married, uh, I wanted her to take on my last name, and and I said this because I thought she had her father's name, which of course she she does, and I thought, well, that's an instance of patriarchy, so take my name, and then of course she said, look, I I like my name; it's a part of my identity. So what I was saying in essence is that let I want you to have my name so that you can identify with me, the uh, alleged uh, you know, figure who has power right in the society. And then she offered something which was quite profound. She said, well, why don't we both change our last names? And, of course, I then dropped the ball. In other <laughs> words, I wasn't able to be as flexible with that, right? But, you know, Part of it, in what, in what she was saying, and what I disclosed, obviously, in the, in, the, in the hashtag I am sexist piece, is that here's a case where, as a male, I'm assuming that I have this authority, and that she then is the person who is supposed to give up something to be in a relationship with me. So while it's true that I'm married, there's nothing incompatible about being married and yet being a sexist. Right, and so that's what I was doing. I was trying, and, and, and by extension, trying to communicate that, I think, to other men, to say just because we love women, just because we want to do good by women, just because we talk about um, justice and and fair, you know, fair play and equity, it doesn't mean that we have failed in our lives to continue the perpetuation of male supremacy or patriarchy. So, George, this then taps into Dear White America. So when I read it, 
um, I remember this sense of profound discomfort that you kind of experience when you're facing an uncomfortable truth, almost like when you get on the scale. (laughs) And um, part of it was this noise inside of it recognizing that I have these unconscious biases that I want to move past. I'm committed to moving past. But part of what you're saying is if we're going to move past, we have to say them out loud. And as I grappled with this is scary and uncomfortable and I'm not that, I don't want to be that. Am I really that? I then started to say, what if I swapped race for gender? And then all of a sudden, I, of course, I'm like, this is brilliant. Of course, every man should recognize this, which reinforced for me that part of what is part of what you're asking of us is if we can own this in ourselves the way that you've owned your own sexism. It says to the people that we're not understanding, respecting, honoring that we're trying. Absolutely. And And I think that's right. And. So, 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 so the idea was then is to is to get white people to be vulnerable. And if you look at that word, and I, I love etymologies, which are the origin <laughs> of words. If you look at the word vulnerable, it means to be wounded. And so I was prepared to be wounded, to be open, to be vulnerable, to be naked, as it were, exposed uh, by talking about my own sexism. And so I wanted to hold up as James Baldwin says, that disagreeable mirror to white people so that it could see themselves in that mirror. But of course, like many men, uh, white folk, in this case, close down on the issue of their whiteness, just as, as I said, many men close down on this issue of whether or not they are sexist. I mean, there are many times that I go to a conference and I will, I will say to men, I said, Can, would you raise your hand if you're, if you're a sexist? Rarely, maybe two men out of, you know, whatever, 20 or 100 men will raise their hand. So they're obviously not getting it. Right? They're not getting what's trying to be communicated. Of course, I'll go on to explain what I mean by sexism. And oftentimes, then they ask, pose the question again, they will in fact raise their hands. But you see, it was the backlash in each case that it, to me is so fascinating and also very painful. For example, when I wrote the letter, Dear White America, uh, on Christmas morning, I started to get email messages, voicemails that were just the most horrendous stuff I'd ever heard. Um, and I'm just giving a trigger warning here in terms of your, your audience uh, listeners, but I was called a nigger uh, probably a thousand times over and over and over again. And these were messages that I actually got to hear. This didn't even include those postcards that I actually got or where white people would write letters and put an, an envelope, you know, put them in an envelope and put a stamp on them just to call me a nigger in writing. I was, at one point, someone wrote and said that I, I ought to have my, uh, I ought to be beheaded, ISIS style, oh my God. Or, or called me an ape or a monkey, or said that we need to use a meat hook and put it in Dr. Yancey, or to kill yourself now. So they were saying, kill yourself now, Dr. Yancey, you know. Um, and, and what's interesting is, after a while, you don't recognize just how violent words can have such an embodied impact, a physiological impact. And I didn't realize this until I got those those very white, virulent messages sent to me. It was like being hit with a brick. Of you course, know, it's terrifying. Them. And now, here's what's interesting. So even after I wrote the, after I wrote the piece, Dear White America, there's some 
white males who picked up on the what's called the 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 myth of the black male rapist so there there was one or two white men who actually wrote and said that dr yancey wrote dear white america in order to get more white women to sleep with him (laughs) as strange as that might sound but in the case of writing the hashtag i am sexist piece now all of a sudden i've been effeminized there's one individual who said who called me a wuss there's another individual who said, and again, I, I offer an, an apology here in advance. There was one individual who said that I was a castrated male. Uh, one, one individual said uh, that Yancey ought to take his finger out of his vagina. Uh, and then another one said that I'm engaging in self-flagellation, which is this act of, of um, beating the flesh, right, as a way, of to, as a way to get rid of guilt. Uh, this is a very religious term. It's what's called the mortification of the, the, the flesh. Right. So, but, but, but none of them it. saw it as the incredibly <laughs> courageous, bold act that it no. was. I mean, let me say no. on behalf of Women at Work, um, yeah. we were moved and inspired by it. It's part of why we wanted to have you here today, because mm. there's clearly something we need to learn about courageous speak mm, speech. You know, we, you know, one of the things we, I even talk about, now granted, it's in the term of innovation, that when you come up with something that scares people, there's usually mm. something potent there. And mm. there's clearly a lot that's potent here. Um, so as we try and talk about how we can own our biases as a way of moving past them, mm. I think one of the things that some of us are afraid of is if I say, I'm racist. Um, I don't want to be in a world that boils everything down to binary options. Mm. Like you, in your book, Black Backlash, you talk about there's KKK white supremacy racist, but then there's a kind of racist it's as if the word almost is inadequate. Mm, absolutely. So that's right. And so it's, it's, and it's, that, it's partly that binary that I wanted to break down in both the Dear White America piece and in the, the hashtag I am sexist. In the Dear White America piece, I wanted to say to white people, I know that you're not part of the Klan. I, I understand that. I know you're not neo-Nazis. Great. But now that we've talked about the so-called bad whites, let's talk about the way in which so-called good whites are actually perpetuating forms of racial injustice to the extent to which they are privileged by a system and a form of privilege they didn't ask for, but yet they get. So when I walk into the store as a, as a, at the same time as a white man walks in the store, I am the one who gets followed. But I get followed precisely because, one, I get followed by the white security guard who sees me as a thief or a criminal, whereas the white gentleman who gets to walk in the store gets to shop free. And as I say, gets to shop with, with a, sign of, a kind of freedom without feeling like he has been racially stereotyped. But that feeling of being able to shop freely without that burden is precisely purchased because I am the one who is wrongly identified in this case as by nature somehow a criminal. And so I, too, wanted to challenge this idea with regard to sexism. I mean, I know that I'm, for example, not like Harvey Weinstein, and I know that I'm not like, like Bill Cosby. I have not committed sort of these, these forms of sexual assault or violence in that particular form. But I want to challenge the bifurcation or the binary between the good male and the bad male, or let's say the passive sexist versus the active sexist. And I want to say that there's a way in which, as men, we've internalized too much of, of 
toxic male masculinity to all of a sudden think that we're free of it and that it doesn't mediate our interactions with women. And two, based on our position within a culture that's predicated on male supremacy, there is no way that we cannot do violence to women because we're part of that system. And not so, seeing it because it, it's so much a part, it, you're such a part of it. No, absolutely. So you're so integral to it. And if, look, if, if white racism and sexism were like changing our clothes, it would be very easy. In other words, you know, I would check my clothes, I'd say these are sexist. Let me get out of them and put, in, put, on, put on a pair of non-sexist clothes, right? right? <laughs> but, it, but you can't do that, right? Um, and, and look, at the end of the day, I argue that the best that I can be is what I call an anti-sexist sexist. Okay. Which means, which means that I can fight against sexism. And by the way, I have been doing that every day of my life. Every morning I get up and I know that I'm preparing to fight against some form of sexism. But at the end of the day, because sexism is a part of a structure and because it's part of a psychic dimension that I that is that has been inculcated into my very way of looking at the world, I can't get out of it. I mean, otherwise, I can't do away with it just through a single act. So, too, with white supremacy and whiteness or white racism, one can be an anti-racist racist. So even as one fights against racism, and I think that we ought to do that, at the end of the day, racism is so much a part of who, we, who whites are psychologically, built into their affects, built into their bodies, built into the way they perceive the world, that, and also built into the structure of white privilege that they can't get on the outside of it. So, so what I, yeah, yeah. So it's almost as if like we're recovering alcoholics, we're recovering sexists <laughs> and recovering racists. Yes. Like that, it, a, yeah. We, we always have to be mindful that it, it is in us like a disease, but that we can make choices every day to not let it take control anymore. No, no absolutely. So, you know, in, in, um, I, I talk about this in terms of vigilance. And vigilance, it comes from the Latin vigilare, which means to, to be watchful. And so I think that what we have to do, both in the case of white racism, that isn't the Klan kind, and also sexism, that isn't, let's say, Harvey Weinstein kind, um, we have to remain vigilant and watchful of the ways in which, though our intentions are good, we often ambush ourselves, or rather, we are ambushed by the sedimented racism or sexism that's already a part of our psyche or the ways in which we move through the world. I mean, even something as simple and benign as holding the door open for a woman. If you ask a man why he's doing that, it's not just because she's another human being, but it's because she's a woman, which means that she is considered quote-unquote weak and that you have a duty because you're a man to show your strength by opening that door, right? Right. So what I want to get men to do is to rethink the everyday mundane ways in which, while this may not be engaging in sexual assault as such, it's nevertheless doing violence to an, a certain kind of understanding of women as somehow weak. So I think that what we need is um, what's called what I call parisia, and it's spelled P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A. And it's a Greek word, which means courageous or fearless speech. In fact, it's called, it means to tell it all. And this is what's been very helpful for me pedagogically in my classrooms, is that I create what I call dangerous spaces in the classroom. And by that, I don't mean we're fighting. But they're dangerous in the sense that 
we raise the issue of vulnerability as high as we can. And we strive not so much to arrive at a place, but we recognize that arrival is a place that we have to get rid of. So that there is no place called the static anti-sexist as such, <laughs> or the static anti-racist as such. There's no utopia for us. Yes, that's right. There is no utopia. But you see, that shouldn't be depressing, though. That should actually be quite... One ought to be thankful for that kind of thing, only because it means that every day one gets to work on oneself like a work of art, right? Like mm. a work of art that's never quite complete. But this is kind of quite beautiful, I think, um, for us as human beings, that we're every day we're a lived existential project, and we're constantly trying to improve without there being a place called a rival. Now, do we get better at it? Of course we do. But until the entire system is transformed, it's a little difficult to see how we stand on the outside of it. Right? And, and especially if a big part of the system is not just things like our laws and our policies, but it's the way that we internalize and exhibit um, these biases all day long, every day to one another. Absolutely. So, so yes. And so that's right. So it's in, in, within the context of the classroom, what I'm trying to do then is to get students to begin to explore and to thematize and not so much to confess because confession is so easy. And, and after the end of confession, often we want absolution. And so I often tell my students, confession is easy, because if you're going to be forgiven right afterward, you can just kind of say, oh, I'll confess, and, I'll, and that's the end of it. But the problem is, if it's true that racism and sexism are systemic, then one will be asking for forgiveness forever, right? Right. And, and continuously asking for absolution. But that's not the point. Justice is more important than absolution. So is the point that we need to be working to redeem ourselves? Yes. On a daily basis, which is why you said you wake up every morning and aware of your sexism and the need to fight it. Absolutely. And if one, you know, it's, it's funny, if one puts this in Christian terms, so assume that there are Christian listeners, you know, it, one might say that it's not, a, it's not one moment uh, that one is, as it were, saved. One might say, particularly within the Christian, Christocentric way of looking at the world, but every day one has to regain a sense of one's salvation. And that means that every day the question of who we are, what we are, what kind of human beings we want to be, has to be a conscious choice. And I see that choice as being motivated by love. But part of the problem is that within our contemporary moment, within the United States in particular, there is no place for a public exercise of love. And what do I mean by that? James Baldwin says that love removes the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live with. So I'm constantly trying to get my students to remove the masks. So when I wrote Dear White America, or when I wrote, you know, the hashtag I am sexist, in that last piece, I'm trying to demask myself, to move beyond the mask, to let people see what it is. I mean, Bell Hooks says that love is telling the truth to ourselves <laughs> and sharing it with others. So there's a way in which that both letters are actually public, demonstrable forms of showing love, one to white people and to women across race, to say, look, there's a self in there that I know, and I don't like it. And I refuse to hide behind the mask any longer, but rather would advocate on behalf of a public form of showing what love looks like. 
And it seems to me that love looks like hashtag I am sexist and dear white America. Right. So that love looks like taking responsibility. Love looks like trying to be better versions of ourselves for other people. Absolutely. And of course, the problem with this is, is that we're often part of communities that don't understand when one talks about one's sexism or when one talks about one's racism, that these are actually ways of refusing to hide behind the masks and hence all the backlash, right? I mean, there were, there were some whites, one example, who wrote to me and said that Martin Luther King would be rolling over in his grave if he, knew, uh, the piece, if he had read the piece, Dear White America. But listen, it was Martin Luther King who actually said that the vast majority of white people in America are either consciously or unconsciously racist. And that's precisely what I was arguing. And then when I get the feedback from men who then call me a wuss, or who say that I'm, you know, a castrated male. There are ways in which I am damned if I decide to speak <laughs> with justice, but at the same time, I'm damned if I remain silent. Well, <laughs> George, I got to tell you, though, here you are celebrated and you are praised. <laughs> and you are not only giving us new ways to look at these ancient problems, but you're giving us new language to un and new ways to understand ourselves and talk to each other about that. Mm. And for that, we're all enormously grateful. If people want to learn more about your work, where can they find you? Well, I think that it, primarily if you if you just put in George Yancey and, and just put in the New York Times, you'll find <laughs> a lot of interesting pieces there. And, of course, my recent book, um, Backlash, um, is, is done phenomenally well. It's done phenomenally well. And I think that it really gets at um, this idea of the ways in which I think what is required for us to overcome or at least to challenge effectively every day of our lives, both sexism and racism, is this idea of vulnerability and this idea of acting in the name of love, which is not Hollywood, which is not sentimentality, but is in fact a form of courage. George, we couldn't end on a better note. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your wisdom and the important work that you're doing. Oh, thanks for having me. I'd also like to thank my producer, Patty Hall, Dana Cash, who's joined us today, the amazing Dion Simpkins over there at the board. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone. Site from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.